open your web browser and go to 68k.news. You can thank me later. It's Google News, but in just beautiful text. Easy to read, easy to render, easy to print. Beautiful news in just glorious text. I'm going to be mad if this is more than 68k to download. Hey friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Don't make Wes angry. You wouldn't like it. No. This episode is brought to you by the all-new Cloud Guru, the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. Hi there. Welcome into the show. It's $3.99, and I'm having a bit of a mild panic attack because I can't believe I've committed to anything for this long. It's been great, though. We were just talking on the live stream about some ideas that we have for next week's episode. So I want to say right here off the top, if you'd like to help us, help us celebrate 400 please join us live next week over jblive.tv at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday next week, and uh, hang out with us to celebrate 400 episodes of this here little podcast. It's pretty great. But coming up on 399, we have a bit of a problem that has been building for a long time in the open source community. And so we wanted to use our 399th episode to spotlight the challenge of independent open source software developers, specifically those who are trying to invest in an application for a long period of time, say a decade. Maybe it's an application that's kind of complicated as well. It's not a fun thing to talk about. And I think in a sense, it's meant that we haven't brought this up a lot because we we don't have a real positive spin on this. But I think it's led us to give this issue less attention than it deserves. So coming up on the show today, we're going to talk with the developer behind Lutris, which is a phenomenal application for Linux gamers to manage their GOG library, their Humble library, Steam library, all in one application, and of course, locally installed games, classic retro games. It's one of the best tools for gamers out there, and the developer of it will be joining us to discuss some of those issues a little bit in the show, Uh, but we have a lot more than that, too. We have a plethora of topics to get into, including some community news, some feedback, and of course, analysis provided by our crack team of virtual lug members. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Namaskaram. Hello. Hello. hello, everybody. It's good to have you here. As we gather here, it's been a week since we found out that RMS was back on the board at the Free Software Foundation. And a lot of things have been written and said about this. I haven't seen this wave of both pushback and analysis and clickbait. Like, I haven't seen this kind of thing in a long time. Um, And so I don't think I have a lot more to say today, but I I am very happy with our coverage on Linux Action News episode 182. So if you haven't heard that and you want to hear our take and analysis on the situation, go check out linuxactionnews.com slash 182 for that. I think at a certain point, what I'm worried about is while there's still relevant discussion to be had here, it starts to look like uh, a feeding frenzy. It becomes more of a gang up than analysis. So uh, I want to give a tip of the hat also to the boys over at Late Night Linux, episode 118. I think they did a really good discussion there. They handled that really well, I thought. They voiced both sides of the situation. They had a good discussion. 
And I wanted to compliment them, so go check out Late Night Linux 118 for that as well, if you're looking for a little more analysis. I think we'll leave it at that, really. I don't think I need to say much more. I'm a little disappointed that some in the Linux media just sort of skipped the story because it made them uncomfortable. Yeah, that's the name of this game. It comes up. And then you saw others who milked it for, like, everything they can. I appreciate it's a hard topic for our community to talk about. I don't think there's much more we can add, Wes, than we have now at this point. Mm -hmm. We had our initial, like, we just found out about the news last week in this episode. And then in Linux Action News 182, we had an opportunity to kind of reflect on uh, all of the open letters that had come out and the news coverage and and sort of surmised our analysis of the situation. And I'm proud of that work we did there. And I think it stands on its own as as a piece of our coverage. Any other thoughts that you have on it? Are you good with that? You agree? Yeah, I agree. I think we should just move right along because also in episode 182 of Linux Action News, we had a good chat with Neil McGovern, the executive director of the GNOME Foundation, discussed the design challenges, GTK4, and of course all the great technical work being done on the shell. And I think that's what we should probably be more excited about today. Here, 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 yeah. There we go. All right. Well, then let's talk about something new. Let's talk about, oh, am I going to say this right? Uh, Alma Linux. Is that right, Wes? <laughs> Alma Linux. It's officially stable today. They write, we are happy to announce we are releasing the first Alma Linux OS stable version. And for those of you who don't remember, this is one of the first announced, quote unquote, replacements for traditional CentOS. They also announced the formation of a nonprofit that's going to take over responsibility for managing the Alma Linux OS project. Also announced some of the board members that are going to steer that effort. So it looks like things are starting to really happen over there. Yeah, I mean, this takes us, what, about four months since we got the news about the traditional release path for CentOS going away and them switching to stream. And now within that time period, we have a one-to-one binary compatible, quote-unquote, drop and replacement. I haven't tested that yet. Um, and they say with a very long support time frame. So if you were wondering how long it would take someone out there to respond to those changes and actually ship something as a version 1.0, four months. There it is. Hats off to them. Yeah, now we just wait and see uh, who uses it and how long it lasts, I guess. I'm not really sure what we qualify as success here, but this this is great. It's great to see, and hopefully there's a lot of happy users out there. I think Rocky is getting really close as well. Rocky Linux is getting nigh. Um the final release of that one, and we'll have to cover that. I mean, at some point, I'd like to take a look at these. I don't know how you exactly do analysis. Send us shootout! Yeah, Carl, do you have any insight in how we could compare these these various CentOS clones and what what benchmarks to even go by there? I'm not I'm not really clear on how to do this. I mean, if if they're doing their mission correctly, you won't really be able to tell a difference. So, right, I guess that is the benchmark, isn't it? Is if it feels like it's its own unique distro, they're doing it wrong. Exactly. Because with their stated goal of, you know, bug for bug compatibility, it gets to be even difficult to add any kind of features or fix any other bugs. That's not going to happen in those type of distros. They're made more for building on top of with some some kind of something equivalent to like the CentOS SIGs, which will be their own challenge to stand up. I'm both happy and pleased for them to see this. But I wonder if you feel like I do, Carl. Like I'm also a little like, but we haven't even given stream a shot yet. I feel kind of like it hasn't gotten its chance to even prove itself. Well, I'm I'm obviously biased there. Um, sure. So I don't know how much <laughs> I can contribute on that uh, other than we're definitely working hard on making Stream 8 good and uh, Stream 9's in the works. It's coming out pretty soon. Uh, I don't know that we've actually set a public-ish date, but definitely very soon you'll see Stream 9 and that'll be, you know, what's planned to go into Rail 9.0 
And I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping a lot more people give it a shot then because we'll have a lot more thing. Modularity will be a lot more mature. Uh, Some of the other drawbacks we've had with eight are going to be taken care of. Like we're trying to make the entire build route available. There were some devil packages that were missing in stream eight that made a lot of things like Apple harder to do. So we're hoping to enable a lot more contributions and a lot more of the ecosystem with nine. It's the first stream of the new era, right? This will be the first time where, we're actually delivering on the mission. Streamate's kind of a retrofit, like, okay, well, it's going to be upstream. It's just still in progress to get upstream. We're still technically, Streamate, we're still rebuilding it. I'm still doing a lot of those rebuilds myself, and they're still happening inside RHEL internally uh, first. It's just they're getting delivered to the public as soon as we rebuild them rather than batching them all up into one big, like, CentOS 8.4 release. Uh, with Stream 9, that's when we're actually going to be moving, finishing that process and having, I don't want to say finished, it'll still be, there'll still be things that can be improved, but it'll be a lot closer to the final vision of rail maintainers doing their builds in Stream 9 first, and then we compo- compose and deliver those. Uh, we're doing weekly right now, uh, delivery of the updates. I don't know if that's, we're going to keep that same cadence, but that's probably what people could expect initially. Mm, okay. Neil, I'm curious if you feel like this means that CentOS stream has to compete even more aggressively with these other clones out there now. So I think that the, the CentOS stream effort that's going on now is going to be an interesting differentiator on itself because, when you look at what CentOS Stream 9 is going to be, um, and, and if you do the right kind of digging and, the, and a little bit of the poking, you can kind of see that we're probably going to start seeing early builds and releases coming out in about uh, two months. Let, uh, we'll, let's, we'll fact check me you know, in two months' time and see if we've, got, if we've got that going. But I think what you're going to see is that people who are really into the enterprise space who have been kind of frustrated with how difficult it is to leverage RHEL or CentOS and be able to get things going and get things fixed, we'll find that CentOS Stream will be a way for them to to deal with those problems because one of the things that I have been conveyed as part of some of the work I do um, professionally that involves Red Hat Enterprise Linux is I'm being told I need to, I should just go push them into CentOS Stream and they'll cherry pick them back if they need to be early, but then they'll be shipped right along with everything else into the next point release. So it gives an avenue in which people who are equipped to be able to do stuff to make it better for everyone actually have the ability to do it, um, engaging with Red Hat and engaging with the community and making a better enterprise Linux. I think that's awesome. I mean, I've already been doing the same in OpenSUSE Leap for three years now. And so it's nice to see this on the Red Hat side of things too. It's gotten to the point now where I can actually visualize the flow of it from from Fedora onward. And the fundamental change now is, is that Stream is going to make RHEL a more openly developed operating system. And I think because of the scale of importance that RHEL has in the industry, that is a bigger win than we can appreciate right now while we are in the midst of the very beginning of the transition. But long term, like when we are in episode 500 territory, we'll look back and be grateful, I think, that RHEL's development is so much more open now. And, and we'll, you, people have insights what's actually going to land in RHEL and can plan and develop for it. Um, I think it's going to make a huge difference, but I guess time will tell. 
We have a PSA for Ubuntu folks out there. Ubuntu 21.04 is testing soon, and they'd love to get your help. Now, they have specific things they're going to focus on, so I recommend you check the link in the show notes if you'd like to help them out. But it's coming up pretty soon, April 1st to April 7th. On April 1st, they'll release Ubuntu 21.04, and they'll halt changes, do some testing, and then hopefully incorporate what everybody finds during testing week. They have information and all that good stuff in a post that Popey made on the Ubuntu Discourse site. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. If you'd like to help them make the next release a little bit better, because this has the opportunity to kind of be a great desktop environment for folks who are not ready to take the plunge to 40 and want something really, really solid and uh, just the latest and greatest of the GNOME 3 series. So go check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes and you can help them. Go help them, you know? Go make it better. Go make it even better. And then next up in the show, this this is an interesting one. So I had an opportunity to sit down with some of the folks behind Shells.com about a week ago, just like an off-air conversation that we had, uh, because they are, well, they're introducing something that seems like a pretty solid idea to me. Streaming is all the rage these days. I signed up for a GeForce Now streaming membership, and every now and then I stream video games. Uh, and it kind of makes sense that Linux would be in on that game. Um, so I, I, they're new. They're, they're just kind of getting rolling. They're not a sponsor or anything like that. There's no relationship between them and JB. But I'm always curious how companies are using Linux. And then because I used to be an IT guy who who build up systems, I always like to know like as much as I can about the tech behind the scenes. And so the idea behind Shells.com, if you haven't heard of it, probably haven't because it's pretty new, it lets you stream a Linux desktop that you have root on via your browser. And they got lots of different distros, some distros they're working directly with who will basically answer their calls. Uh, so all of them that will. There's like, I, I played, did you get a chance to play with it, Wes? I played with an Ubuntu box, a Fedora box. I messed around with it and thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play with it a ton, but everything I tried, I was pretty impressed. Snappy, worked right up. I mean, it felt like a real Linux box. Yeah, and it's, Interesting because they're not like running off of any other cloud infrastructure. They, in in the modern day, they're actually, they have their own data center, their own servers. It really seems like they have this infrastructure pretty far along. And I was curious why, and I suspect it's because they have ties to the people who found private internet access and even Mt. Gox. So I chatted with their man behind the scenes who is building all this up on the tech side. So I'm Zlatan Todorich. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's because you might recall he was the CTO at Purism in a past life. So we started things off by asking why he left Purism and how he ended up at Shells.com. I think our audience might recall your name. It might sound familiar because it was October 20th, 2019 that Michael Arbrell posted an interview with you at Pharonix where you expressed some concerns around Purism. So how do we go... Short version, how do we go from leaving Purism to working at Shells.com and building their tech infrastructure? Well, it was, again, more like part of a community. So I left Purism because I disagreed with the direction uh, it chose to go forward. And uh, I ended up in Shells because they basically contacted KD community and... uh, uh, people from KD community contacted me and they needed a systems engineer. And from there on, I became a systems engineer, project manager, product manager, and probably s- some few more <laughs> titles in there. Uh, 
you know, it's it's startup, so mm-hmm. everybody is having like five jobs. Yeah, I know that one. Um, I, it's it just seems super ambitious. Uh, so uh, the elevator pitch for the audience that's listening and feel free to jump in is it's a way to get a full Linux desktop shell in your web browser or on mobile using the app. And if you're a student or a worker or a developer or creator and you need access to a Linux desktop and 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 one that will persist as well, so you can disconnect and reconnect, and that environment still exists, and you can install software, and you can you you get admin access. That's what shells.com is is trying to do. But but functionally, that means you're spinning up VMs and creating VMs and allocating IPs and all kinds of stuff on the back end. And there's not like a package, as far as I know, that you can just install and will do that for you. So no, we we basically use. Uh open source tech and leverage that. Uh, so we use QEMU and uh, we use Pipe Protocol to basically show in browsers. And uh, we have our own things going on in the back end to make all that smooth process. And uh, as you said, like currently uh, we have like a couple of Linux distros. We work with more. We also plan to offer Windows, Android, and who knows what future brings for the rest. Uh, it seems like you must have done something to make the Spice experience feel a little quicker. It feels faster than VNC to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, Spice has already integrated its own protocols, and we use uh, the servers are strong servers back, so it's a lot of hardware power behind, but we also have a fast networks. And we do require a bit that you have on your side as well, faster networks, so it gets... It doesn't have that huge latency, and uh, we have our own data centers, and we try uh, uh, to actually move data quite fast and uh, use Ceph as an object storage behind uh, to make sure everything is uh, kept in place. It doesn't break every day and loses uh, user data. Can we talk just for a second before you go too much further? Can we talk about the centralized storage? I'm curious how you've built that here. So I got a little bit of insight there. It sounds like you're using uh, Ceph's to manage some of this. Can you break some of that down for us? Well, there's nothing special. We use, again, basically what Ceph is uh, you know, giving us, and uh, we just deploy it uh, on all our servers, and we make it sure that uh, we have backups, and you know, Ceph is good for basically keeping you know, data uncorrupted and uh, moving a lot of data around because, again, serving a desktop is uh, quite a bit of data that needs to be moved around, and especially the QE plan. How are the data centers connected? Is it uh, like a VPN over the public internet? Have you guys wired the data centers directly together? Because that it seems like a ton of data to move around. Yeah, so we wired them, and uh, it's our own data centers with our own servers, and uh, basically try to have everything uh, in one place and to maintain by ourselves so we don't uh, rent anything from Amazon or DigitalOcean or what's the usual expect for that. We really try to keep it everything in house uh, because again, Shell was founded by founders of uh, PIA, and they really care for the privacy and security. So instead of relying on others, we we're actually working hard uh, to have everything in house and make it as private as secure as possible on our side. It sounds like there's been some lessons, perhaps maybe from running PIA, that were learned, lessons you learned. Just going into this, you're kind of building it the way you would want to build it after after building something that's just quick and cheap and then having to tear it down and rebuild. <laughs> like It sounds like you just went right to the rebuild. This is what you'd want to build if you could stage. Yeah, so we are really trying 
in our, our decision to make a decision that's going to be a long term uh, because we have the resources to pull that out. And uh, we are still, of course, learning along our way, but there is no slacking or there's no like a quick road to anything. Uh, we are trying to make a stable product from day one. So we spend a lot of times during the day, most actually of our time during the day, debugging things, uh, making them work together, having the transitions go smooth so users don't see anything happening in their shells, and which is a really good achievement because we daily uh, send things to the production and uh, we try to avoid as much breakage as we can. But, but sometimes we break things, but we are quick to fix what are we using underneath the, the user experience? What, what Linux distro and kind of technology are you using to push things around? The kernel that's uh, powering all shells is uh, a gentle one. So it's pretty uh, upstream agnostic. It's very close to upstream and we use the latest one. But we actually do offer uh, to distros and we collaborate with some of them like OpenSUSE and Fedora. They expressed desire to have their own kernel to actually run uh, the entire experience and we do offer that as well but it, again then in that case the distros themselves need to provide the kernel they need to provide the bootloader need to provide the discursized tools uh, obviously uh, or you have the other way going with our kernel and we already have automated the discursize in it and uh, it's pretty nice though that the distros are giving you that feedback it sounds like you guys have talked to a lot of them and some of them have said it could be even better if you tweaked a few things so you've got to build a system that can accommodate hosting servers in your data center running say a fedora kernel and a Gen 2 kernel for a different system uh, it sounds like there's there must be some glue that that helps you manage all of this we have uh, like most of the scripts uh, for the systems. We actually open source them, and we invite uh, distros to uh, collaborate on our GitHub repo, basically giving their own scripts how to build them. Ah. But yeah, we have a couple of scripts uh, for managing all that the data centers, including everything we have them currently internally. So they are not currently open source, but we do plan to open source them in the future. It's just that we are working at, at high pace and currently we don't, we don't have like a super usable finished product for people, you know, to just build on top of it. But it's going to be there. Like we're going to open source more and more things eventually. I set myself up a couple of, I set up a Fedora workstation uh, shell and I also tried out the Ubuntu 2004 experience. And it's pretty cool. It, it seems like it really is becoming the era of streaming desktops and streaming games. And I, I wonder, since you've been under the hood for a little bit, is there any tweaks? Like if you could wave a magic wand and all of a sudden have development effort in Linux directed at something, is there any new code or tweaks that you would wish for to make this even better for what Shells.com is trying to do? There's like some latency, I, I guess, like issues that we that we see from time to time and that we're probably going to try to improve the, the, the Spice protocol and upstream those things. And of course, there's the input. Uh, we need to make it sure that uh, once you plug your USB, that it's going to be right inside the shells. And uh, some people expressed, you know, they want to do that and have printing capabilities because that's like an enterprise solution. So what we need to tweak and work on those kind of those, like, I would say minor, maybe not medium hard things, but there's nothing too much special now that I would really change about it. 
just refinements and improving things to make it work even better. It seems like the like especially with spice. Yeah, we are doing spice is gonna have some changes, but mostly it's basically like default tweaking the same with the QEMU. And uh, for example, now we don't have GPUs in our data centers, uh, but we do plan in future to have that. And that's going to bring us another option, the VRGL option to basically pass through directly to GPU, which is going to increase the performance a lot. It can be literally in hundreds and even thousands of times the performance can rise because most of the desktop nowadays they have, you know, the graphical acceleration, compositing, and same goes for the browsers. You know, YouTube needs hardware acceleration to properly uh, push that through. And uh, so some some things are like hardware specific and some are so- software specific that we're going to tune through the time. But on, on bright side, like Linux distributions work really well through Spice and through QEMMU and uh, uh, entire work done by that by community on that side is absolutely stunning and incredible. And we're just building on top of it. It's again, the power of the open source is coming to its own height. Linode.com slash unplugged. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit and, mm, oh, support the show. I just love it. You know, here we are. An independent podcast, almost to 400 episodes, and one of the things that makes it possible is the audience trusting that we work with great sponsors and trying them. And Linode, it it can solve some problems if you're prototyping, if you're learning, or if you just want to host something for yourself or for the public. Linode has different machines at different price points that you're going to be impressed by. They're 30 to 50% less than AWS or Azure. And personally, one of the things I love about Linode is they have all the distros. And the reason why I love that is it's a great opportunity to learn and test or just host the dist- with on the distro that you prefer, I suppose. I mean, that seems like the obvious one. <laughs> I, I even found a how-to online on how to, using Linux, actually, load Windows. People want Windows on Linodes, too. I mean, that's because the Linode hardware is really good. You can go get Windows VPSs somewhere, Right. But Linode does more than just the average bear. They have fast disks and network and a great interface and 11 data centers to choose from. They've really dialed this thing in because they've been around since 2003. And now they're dedicated to the best virtualized cloud computing. They're independently owned and founded on a love for Linux and open source technologies. They support this here show and other others in the Linux media space. And of course, projects that we love like Kubuntu and events like All Things Open and Linux Fest Northwest which gives them a real special place in my heart. And the fact that they're Linux nerds, well, isn't that just the icing on the cake? So go support the show and see what I've been talking about. Try them out. Linode.com slash unplugged. Well, Mr. Payne, why don't we talk about something that uh, is a bit ox? You know what I mean? It's time to broach this subject, I think. I think what gets me about it is... uh, it's easy to feel guilty, like like we're part of the problem. So what we're going to try to talk about today through the lens of the Lutris project is an overwhelming problem that seems to be facing independent open source developers who have to balance life and time and community and bug fixes. Matthew's dedicated the last 10 years to building Lutris. He's adjusted his work schedule to go part-time, so he has time for the project and also time for himself. I mean, also, just trying to take care of yourself is a hard thing to balance. It's not really even a hobby anymore at that point. I mean, gosh. Yeah. And we've talked to developers off-air, but not a lot of developers have wanted to say what he's going to say 
on air. We do see this discussion happening a lot, and I know it's uncomfortable for us end users. So we just kind of have to listen, and maybe we can come up as a community just maybe some ideas or solutions to address some of these concerns that he'll raise. It seems like there is some kind of change that is in the winds. And our chat with Matthew gives us insights into some of the longer-term challenges, specifically around these complex applications. Well, Matthew, thank you for joining me on the show today. You did a blog post on the 20th of March titled, Not on the Same Page. And it's sort of a reflection of your 15-year journey in Linux. You are the founder of Lutris, which is one of my absolute favorite desktop Linux apps. Do you have a elevator pitch to the audience who might not be familiar with who or what Lutris is? Well, I call it a video game preservation platform now. Uh, I used to call it an open platform for Linux, and recently I've decided to to change uh, like the main focus of the project and to make it clear that it's a, a project that is here to preserve video games, to make them run locally on your machine. So the goal is really to, to make run any type of video games, regardless of their platform. It can be old consoles, uh, old computers, uh, or like really modern games as well. And one place to just manage all of that and try to make it as approachable as possible, which is obvious why I love the project. Uh, you must have known trying to build something like this, especially targeting the Linux desktop before you even started, was going to be an uphill battle. I knew that uh, in some ways because the way I wanted to approach uh, Lutris was not uh, the traditional way of like running things. But also, I had some ideas. I wanted to gather some, let's say, some development team or just a team to, to work with. And I thought that I would start an open source project and... And, you know, some people would jump into the project and I was just getting started at the time and I wasn't like the best programmer or anything. You thought if you built it, though, they would come. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that's, yeah, I just have to start something and someone will say, oh, this looks great. So I'll come and help you. Well, the users arrived. <laughs> yeah, the users, yes, but not really. And also some people who help with the code really means it, it, I don't I don't want to say that I haven't had any contributors because that wouldn't be true. But some team members do work on the project who would be like like on the same page, like I said. Like. But as the project goes on, it sounds like the disconnect that you felt between what you have in mind, what the goals are for the project, and what Linux users are asking for. Um, and it sounds like a kind of a core tenet of Linux users is this desire to tweak their system and make it their own, customize it the way they like it. It's something the community, I, I think you say, and I agree with, takes pride in doing. But that is ultimately kind of creating an always moving target for you, I would imagine. That's something that's on top of the open source aspect of the project. That's just working on Linux, and that would be that. That would also happen if the the program was proprietary, like Steam. Steam faces the same issues. Like when they want to to run uh, games on Linux, they have to work on this platform, which is so broad and what you can do with it, that you have to target something to ship on, and that thing is like moving all the time, like you said. You could describe it as a volatile environment to develop for. Um, you write on here, if your goal is to have a system that is about choice, then you've made the choice to not give me or other developers a stable foundation to build upon. I might not 100% agree with that, but I have absolutely heard that sentiment 100 times over from other developers I've talked to. Yeah, and I don't want to say that Linux is not stable because I have software that is closed source and 
that will run on, on Linux like pretty easily. So like compatibility is good if you are doing the right thing. If you're choosing like the right libraries and you're compiling just rights, then your program might like keep working in the long run. And Lutris like interacts a lot with a lot of the other components of the system. It's just like a video game is just its own program just shows up, it's a 3D window and it's done. But Lutris is all interacting with all these other components on, on the system. So it has to play friendly. It has to to have like a, a good idea on what what's going on. And that's not always easy to, to achieve to have this situation or you have control of on what you're running. And it's not like you're trying to support some open source command line application inside Lutris. You're trying to support a complex game that's using God knows what 3D and audio libraries from God knows when. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, look, the, the development I'm doing right now in Lutris is to support command line applications, but yes. Oh, really? That's hilarious. <laughs> well, good for you. That might be nice for a while. <laughs> it's also in order to, to build some a feature that will be used for Steam and everything. So it's not only for command line, but it's something that's it's a starting point for some other things. But yeah, it has to, to be in this ecosystem that's, it works great locally on my setup, and then someone tries it, and they have this those weirdest issues. If I, if I knew how to produce issues, usually they don't take long to, to solve. What weird thing did they do that I would have to replicate to reproduce the problem? I mean, what it sounds like you're describing is why containers have become so popular in the server space, because it sort of smooths this problem out. Uh, there are some efforts regarding uh, containers, including one that I've made that's using the Docker, and I've made it so it would run like old Loki games, like uh, Soldier of Fortune or SimCity. But the problem is that it doesn't play nice with what's installed locally, like the graphics drivers or like the sound card or like all those things. So. There's something I have an idea for that. I don't. I'm not sure it's technically feasible because it's really just an idea at this point. It's like on paper. It's like no code, no prototype, no, nothing. But something that would more or less do like what Wine is doing, but for for Linux, and that would say, okay, you want to run this game, but you run this game in this section of this window because this is also to to address some of the the problems with Wayland rights. Because Wayland like, gets rid of all the like screen coordinates, so you run a game and the game doesn't know where to put itself. And same with sound cards. Sometimes you have like a sound coming coming out of your TV, and you would like it from your headphones, and it gets mixed up and everything. And you have like games with also and a game with false audio. I mean, it gets messy. So if you had some some way of sending the game where you want it to, and that can be like a portion of the screen, that could be like a full screen, that could be like two screens, span like a, like a big window that spans two screens or three, I don't know, any number of screens. Uh, like if you give it the game, like only the, the, the sound card you, you want to use, or if you want to give it like only the joysticks you want it to use, then that would solve a lot of problems. And that's something I would like to give it a go. I mean, that's nothing. That's not not something I can do like technically because I'm not good enough. It's a fantastic idea, and it kind of is. Kind of going back to a point you were making earlier is it kind of comes down to developer resources. The theme we see here is that Lutris has gotten really popular. It's it's like it is. I think a critical part of a Linux gamer's set of tools, and it has a very loyal user base, but it hasn't really scaled up development wise. 
And in part, that means that you are inundated with tons of issues, you and many other developers. And I wonder if this isn't a, a tooling problem, Matthew, because I, 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 I talk to other developers who have, who have just turned off notifications of new issues and, and requests because they just simply don't have the email bandwidth to manage it. And they're just going to be working on what they have time to work on anyways. And it, it kind of makes the whole bug submission process moot. And it leaves end users expecting that something's going to get fixed, and it creates this weird tension between developer and user. And I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts on how we could fix this problem because from your blog, I I grok that this is an issue for you and everybody else I talk to in this space. Is it a tooling problem? Is it a people problem? It's a problem with expectations. I think this is like very common. It's not only with issues, issues is something that's raised quite twice a lot, but also like pull request is also very time consuming and it can be worse in some ways than issues because issues, I mean, you just respond and you get on with it. And if you don't have the time to work on it, then I mean, that's too bad, but uh, you can go on with pull request. I mean, either it's something you're not, you don't want, and then you have to, to say, well, no, that's not something we want for the project. Or so, so something you want, but it's not, it doesn't fit well, or I mean, doesn't doesn't fit the code standards or like all, all the stuff that's around the project. Or it uses some code var- variation that will break the project on various platforms. Right. So you can't just go with it. And if you were gonna if you were gonna import it, it would take hours of refactoring. Yeah, and I was I was doing that at some point like earlier, like a few years ago, where I would just like welcome everything and say, "Yeah, you got the project. That's great." And it would just hit merge, and and then weeks would pass, and and sometimes like a bug would sneak in and would not see it, and then I would ship the the, the program with some broken stuff because I didn't test the the PR enough or I didn't review it enough, and some some PR. Contain some like really broken stuff, and that uh, that has happened like a few times. And it happens enough that you have to always be vigilant for it. I talked to a developer last week who said, even though he has an open source project, he just sort of has an unofficial policy that he's not going to accept any future merge requests. He'll look at the code, and then if he likes it, he'll rewrite it himself and <laughs> do it that way. Yeah, that's uh, I've done that a lot. Either. Uh, just saying, no, I don't want this pull request, but then writing my own version of it or merging it and then rewriting on top of it. Uh, yeah, that's something that's frequent. And I think that's mostly because this doesn't happen like in, in, in companies, like in, in when you're working on a company on a project, this doesn't happen. This is an open source problem. And I think in a way, GitHub and its UI have kind of encourage this issue. They've made it worse. Yeah, but this is open source, but also open source on a one-man team project because you have like yes. Mozilla, you have like big projects that have like a real team on it. Staff. Yeah, and you don't have those problems. You have like a real like workflow that you would see in, in an enterprise. And because like everyone is on the same team, they share the same coding standards. They have like the same goals and key results they have to hit. Yeah, the same. Yeah, they, they, and this is something. So I went back and and read some of the um, the things that were in the cathedral and the bazaar. Yeah, and some of its rebuttal, mostly like not not the article itself of the cat B, but more of the articles that followed it. Mm, interesting, good idea. And one of them is like uh, link into in the Wikipedia page for Cat B, and 
And it was like written like uh, more than 20 years ago. It was written in 99, just after um, Cat B was released. And it raises a lot of important issues that are really valid today. And, you know, like about this like tribalism or cult of personality and all this stuff, and also not having the bandwidth to to work on issues and the fact that open source can slow down a developer instead of speed up and all those things. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really old, but also really, really accurate in how things work even today. And yeah, I shouldn't have I sh- had like some expectations that open source would bring some some help into the development and like help me like really speed up the development. But it's really clear now that you work on something on your own, like it's kind of cloud source, but it doesn't have to be. At some point, it's just like it exists just on your computer because you're the only one who's aware of it. If you release something and you make it open, then that's not going to speed up anything. That's just going to make it visible to people so people will be able to... Yeah, it speeds up adoption, essentially. It gets it included in distribution repositories. and Yeah, and if it's good and if it's, if it's stable enough to be used, yeah, then adoption will grow. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee a development team will form or or that the tooling around the support process will be comprehensive. It, it's it's like a land of promise, but then you get to you get there and it turns out there's a lot of negatives and positives. And I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It doesn't put you in a place where you can build and design great things. So you can like support your software, you can debug it. And it's pretty I mean, it's true because I've found that it was the case that it's good to have this open source environment when I'm in QA stage, when I've done a bunch of work and I, I say, okay. I've done this, please test it. And sometimes, I mean, there's not even enough testing because I release those betas or release candidates and I say, okay, test it. And there is some testing. There is some, there are a lot of bug reports and it goes well. It's fast and there's a lot of feedback in, in that. And that sort of situation, open source were really great. And then we have this situation where we are now, where we're just after release. And I want to have a lot of new stuff that's like either like rewriting some previous code or just like brand new code that's never been done before that that creates like value added for the project. That's right. The kind of features you get excited to work on. Yeah, the the, the fun stuff. Like this is like fun stuff. This is stuff that will bring like value to the program that doesn't exist yet. Uh, this is stuff that has been promised in like on Patreon or like to don- like donors. All those new features, that's where it blocks. That's where I, I want to like get the project working and then it's no because of those PRs. And people like also come and complain about like the state of the project, current projects. And they say, oh, this doesn't work right. Oh, the, the, the UI doesn't work right. And and say, yeah, okay, but this is not like really finished. It's like more, I've shipped what I could do with it. It's in a working form while you focus on other features. Yeah. And I want to change it. I don't want to keep it that way. But also, I don't want to bring back the other, like the old stuff. I don't want to, to regress. So I want to keep moving forward. But some people, they just say, oh, this is bad. I just want the old stuff. I just want the old stuff back. And say, no, this is, I, I know this is not great, but I want to make it better, not smooth backwards. Yeah, I can totally understand that, especially when you've been working on something for so long. It's like you, that's, 
it's got to be a it's got to be a huge driver to want to build these these new things. And is the unspoken thing here is simply revenue? If this was a fifty dollar piece of software that somebody had to buy from you before they downloaded it, you could just hire developers. Yeah, sadly, I'm I'm not under the same impression because uh, so what I see is that ten years ago when the the Lutris project started, there was a big push from I would say mostly from Ubuntu, from Canonical to create those developers. And this effort is just not here today. And this is something that's been noted by other developers. I've heard this from other developers that there was a huge like group efforts and everybody, everybody was developing software, even people that never like called themselves software developers. They would just fire up like some code editor, write some Python and GTK. And everyone was doing Python and GTK. And there was this quickly framework that would like let, let you create those, those apps like really fast. And now I think that's, there's not this group efforts going on. And there's this sort of confusion of what's, what should we do? What should I code in? Should it be in Electron? Should I code in Rust? Should I code in Python? There's no like, I don't know like Python developers who work in GTK anymore. Uh, I mean, I know one, uh, the developer of Lollipop. I mean, I don't know him personally. I know his code. I know other like small projects. Like there's like a GOG, uh, a GOG tool that's written with Python and GTK. I mean, if I wanted to hire someone, I don't know who, who I would hire at this point. Mm, I see. The financiary aspect is not the problem because I've made the decision to to just work part-time because I wanted to keep uh, Lutris going. So I have a contracted job that is only 20 hours because I want to keep... Uh, I mean, it's not just for Lutris, okay? It's also for having some more time for myself, but also mostly to be able to work on, on Lutris. So that is myself putting some resources into the projects. But even I've noticed that even being having all this time devoted to the project doesn't necessarily help when all I see around it is like no one being, like I said, I was working on this like monitoring stuff for like command line applications. And like, there's no one who is aware of this. Like, there's, I mean, yes, there's the, an issue um, on GitHub. There's like a few comments uh, that have been. And if I wanted to work on this with someone, I wouldn't know. Like, I wouldn't know who to reach out to. I wonder, you know, if it isn't the point you make in your blog. We don't have a common goal. In a silly way, like hating Windows and hating Microsoft, and how everybody had been burned by Windows. It was a unifying. Mission. We all wanted to beat Windows, and then Microsoft went and rolled over on its own. <laughs> and I think, in a way, with with Microsoft not really being the big bad guy anymore, we've sort of lost a bit of unity, um, and a, we've sort of lost a common goal. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's something I feel. But also, I don't feel that's the the being against Microsoft brought like anything of value. I mean, it brought like people to to Linux, sure. But I don't think it brought like technical expertise, and I don't think it brought like code, like actual code. So that was something to rally, like to group together. But that's it wasn't necessarily a healthy thing. 
Yeah, it wasn't healthy and there's there's echoes and ramifications and ripples from it that are I think are not positive today. I, I agree, and I was I was fully participant in it back in the day. I I completely acknowledge that. Oh, I mean, I was participant in like the anti Microsoft stuff like before I was using Amiga. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't have a computer, and I was already anti Microsoft. So, what do you think this this leaves you as a as a longtime Linux user? Do you think it's kind of a new I don't want to call it a maturing of how you are going to interact with Linux in the community, but a, a shift kind of like from lessons learned. Is it kind of a, have you come to a new a new realization or a new normal, as it were? Yeah, totally. Like, not only because of that aspect, but also because of some more positive aspects. The more positive aspect being that I have this Linux console that can play pretty much any game I want. So from some point of view, the project is pretty much done because I have this this machine and I don't have a game that I cannot play. That's great. So from that, yeah, and, and that's something I want to to say, okay, this is, from now on, this is the reality of Linux. This is that I have this machine that can play pretty much any game I want, regardless of its age, regardless of its platform. So I want to build based on that, and that's going to be the reality. And I, sure, there will be some feedback from people who give some, like send them some bug reports and they, they want to, to bring some features. But from now on, I build the, the software based on, on that console that can run those games. And that's something that I have in my living room that I can work on that is like rooted in like physical world. So I don't have to, to ask questions, I can just, make progress on that. It's going to be more of an intentional development style. There's also another positive thing about Futris is that it's also now everywhere. It's in Ubuntu, it's in Debian. So I don't want to ship something that's broken and I want to have some like a lot more testing going on. And I hope that your new focus ends up making you more uh, pleased with the process, you know, enjoy the process a bit more and means that we get years more of Futris. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the goal is to be enjoying more of the... The development process. I care about the project a lot. That's that's. I would rather like change some of the aspects of the open sourceness of the projects rather than just walk away from the projects. It's almost worth listening to that again if you care about this issue because what he touches on, you can kind of extract what the bigger picture issues are. Because what I heard in there is that he feels like he's been left behind by the GTK and Python stack, and he's not really sure where to go next. He hasn't really had a lot of development support. The users definitely showed up, but he hasn't really had people show up helping him. And I mean, he has had support, but not like core development features, you know, the big stuff. And I think there's also a disconnect right now because he wants to work on finishing core features and users are submitting requests that are more like quality of life requests, not necessarily core feature fixes. And I think he's kind of getting a bit demotivated by it all. No, you're right. I mean, this is something that started as a solo project, a hobby project maybe, and has really grown. And in open source, it can be hard, especially I think, you know, once you're packaged in distributions, you're widely known, there are a lot of expectations spoken and unspoken. Yeah. It's also really hard to find good development support. I mean, this is true even in, in like, you know, private corporate development, but when it's a baby, when it's your project, you can't just turn control over to anyone. Delegating is hard, finding good help is hard, and then 
if you don't totally trust them to, you know, make a, a fully formed PR that just needs a little light review, some checking, then you're going to either have to do a whole bunch of hand-holding and help, which can be good and can be one way to eventually get more help on the project, but that's a huge investment. Or, you know, as Matthew mentioned, the other option is just sort of taking that idea and just doing it yourself, but that doesn't scale. And this is something he, he mentioned that I, I never thought of because, of course, I'm not a developer, but it's not easy to figure out who's the designer to go to to develop GTK applications and have them design a beautiful GTK app, or who do I go to that has this Python expertise? Like, we don't have a way to really sort that out. The downside of the flexibility, right? I mean, I think it favors folks with strong opinions and who who do just want to make their own project, and I, I'm going to make it work my way. But if you don't have those strong opinions or you want to try to find some help, it's not clear where are those communities, where are other people doing? If everyone assembles it their own way on the development stack, well, they might not be ready to just jump in and use your version of that. Yeah, that is an interesting challenge as well. So yeah, you're right. That's also in there is sometimes you get uh, a patch that comes along, but it just is written in a way that just not really fit with the rest of the project's code base. And so that's particularly tricky. And then, of course, in there, you can hear that he's had struggle with motivation as well. And our podcast, I know you had some thoughts on staying motivated when you're getting that kind of skewed feedback from users who want things and not the users that are just sitting back there loving the software, using it every day. Yeah, I mean, I encounter this even in my day job sometimes with developing complex and sophisticated products, but then you only hear about what's wrong with it. You don't hear a lot of praise from it. And I think in open source, that happens all too much, whether it's creating software like Luchers or even content creators like some of us. Sometimes you just hear about wrongs and not so much how to help people. And I know that can be a, a big problem with keeping motivated. Yeah, really, you know, because like I told him, you know, it, it's packaged with the distros, so it's not like I download it from the website. I installed from the repo, and I've just used it for like eight years, and I've never sent him a note saying thank you. That's why I actually wanted to reach out to him recently, and then he made a blog post, and I was like, dude, we got to talk. Um, and uh, I, I just, I really connected with that struggle of this passion project. It's a, it's a different transition for everybody, and if he could get out of the trenches and build a community of support around him that could deal with some of that lower-hanging fruit, that would definitely be beneficial. But I think part of the problem is just he doesn't have the tactical time to accomplish that. And Neil, I know you have experienced this. You might have some suggestions. Yeah, so it's been something that I've had to experience for years. Like, uh, I I don't actually write as much code as I used to five or six years ago. I actually do, I spent a lot more time doing coordination and community building and all that kind of stuff because it's actually harder than writing a line of code. It's so much harder. And, and I still do technical work. You know that, Chris. I've, I've you know, the Butterfest things and stuff in Fedora with, with Plasma and Wayland and Pipewire and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm still doing that stuff. But, like, I spend a lot of my time doing that because if you don't have someone actually doing that work specifically, you burn out. And so, you know, my suggestion on that front, at least, is instead of looking for another developer, look for someone that is geared towards, you know, doing the community building because you can't do both. It, it's just, it, you'll, you'll burn yourself out doing it. I think he's starting to feel that in the first place. And another bit that, you know, he was talking about feeling abandoned by the Pi GTK mess is the nicest way to put it. I've seen a lot of projects move from GTK to Qt mostly because of this. And the other added advantage of using Qt is that it the other market that is that a lot of Linux software tends to be more successful on is macOS. And 
Qt works a lot better there than GTK. Uh, and if that's something that eventually somebody wants to do, like Lutris on, on Mac OS, I don't see any reason anyone would. That That's a thing. But I think PyQt, which is, which is officially supported by the Qt project and is maintained as part of it, is pretty much the go-to for a lot of the Pythonistas doing graphical applications these days is fairly straightforward to use. And with things like QML, it's super easy to do the styling and stuff like that. That's probably like if you if you want to take a hard look at, about like switching ecosystems while remaining Python, that's probably the best choice to go. Otherwise, I mean, another option is, and this is me like doing a little plug for myself here, um, a project that I work on called the Monotools Project. We use a library called LibUI from the SUSE folks. That's the that's the UI toolkit library that powers the Yast installer. Um, we have Python bindings uh, for it, and it works fairly well. And that and that library toolkit gives you both Qt5 and GTK3 um, UIs basically for free by using the abstract interface provided by LibUI. I think the next thing that that Lutris as a project needs to consider is not hiring a developer, but hiring a community manager type. A community manager is a really good point. And it could be somebody who could help kind of bubble the people that could help the most to the top uh, to Matthew. It's a, it's a good idea because I think a support community beyond just a community of users who need, right, but a community of contributors. Well, and I think you know, Chris, right, it can be hard to balance time involved directly in the community and then time doing the work, whether that's you know creating a show or actually heads down in the tre- trenches trying to add a complicated technical new feature. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, I sit now uh, as as kind of you know a reward, I guess, maybe in a way for having been around for so long. We have a lot of really good people in our community that can help help organize it as well, um, including a lot of people who are here in our virtual log right now. And it, it, it means that I get to be more of a participant and, and that's really great. But that's, that's like, you know, that's what you, to get to that point, you've got to build something for a really long time. Uh, but he does have a very beloved application. So I think he's got everything that it would take to build a good community around him. And, you know, he and I talked a little bit off air afterwards, and he felt like there's probably some sort of shift. Something is going to happen. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about what Elementary OS is doing, and he thinks that's an intriguing idea. Just that, just having kind of some established design languages, and he, he wouldn't necessarily have to use Vala either. You know, but just kind of following their GTK design language and stuff is is an idea. Just in its sense, because he likes that kind of structure. I mentioned it in the in the chat, but he authored this blog post where he goes into a lot more detail. Uh, and so if you are curious, we'll have a link in the notes if you want to check that out. Go go, give that a read, and uh, it gets a little, that's probably, and he wrote it more in the moment of passion. You know, by the time he and I got on got on the horn, I think he had some time to reflect on a little bit, but that, that blog post, I think, was written kind of at the heat of the moment. So that'll be at linuxunplugged.com slash 399. Just a couple of last-minute housekeeping items because we're getting long. It's a big show. 399 is a lot, but... There was a pretty cool up lug this Sunday, so I wanted to give Minimac a chance to uh, give us an update on how things went at the Lublug. Thank you, Chris. So we had a good meeting. I think there were about 20 listeners to the talk. So the topic was very specific. I mean, creating and managing data streams is not an everyday task for a normal Linux user. But we had some well-informed people in the room. 
And also for the first time, we had some audio and video recording. So we recorded our mumble room and Bennett shared his screen via OBS Ninja and also recorded his screen at the same time. So I think it was a pretty good success. But we have Bennett here in the room. So Bennett, what do you think? Hey, Minimac. Uh, I do have to say, Luplug was a huge success. I was blown away with the turnout, and I met some really interesting engineers. Um, as Minimac mentioned, we recorded the Luplug, so in case you missed you missed the Luplug and want to watch the recording, you can watch the edited down condensed version, so you can catch Luplug in a third of the time. <laughs> How about that? That's great, guys. Man, you know. As we're getting close to 400, I look. Oh, I better. You know what? For the 400 time capsule, I'm going to put down st- uh, how the Luplug's doing. That's going to be number six in the time capsule. So uh, I just, it's so cool to see. You know, that's a that's a self self started organic component to this show's community, and I think it's so great. Um, so if you want to participate in the Luplug, it's every Sunday, noon Pacific, in our Mumble Room right there in the lobby, and we have information about our Mumble Room on the website at linuxunplugged.com. You can probably find that, I would imagine. And then also, while we're in the housekeeping, just one more reminder, next week is 400. We will be live and would love to have you join us. If you haven't had an opportunity to join us in a while, it would be a great chance to come by and say hi and celebrate 400 episodes of your Unplugged program. Then we have 401 pre-recorded, so we will not be live on April 13th. So 401 is going to be a pre-record. But then we'll be back to our regular bat time. So come hang out with us next week for 400, and then I give you permission to take the week off on 401. You just listen to it on your own time. I'm, I'm going to let you do that just this once, though. So uh, I don't want to see you doing that too much, but it's a special occasion. And that's really all we have in the housekeeping. Thank you to our members who support the show, help us stay independent. And uh, that means a lot to us. And... Uh, Especially as we get, wow! I'm just feeling really. I don't know. I'm feeling really something now that we're getting close to 400. I'm really grateful for those members. Unpluggedcore.com. Thank you very much. We got a couple of perks for you. You get a limited ad version of the show as one feed option. Same full production. All the Joe Lovin, just few less ads. And then there is feed two, which is the full live stream. Right as we get going, I hit the record button. Our mumble room is our virtual lug. You know, imagine being at a lug as people trickle in through the door and you say, oh, you know, it's been a week since you see you say, oh, hi, how's it going? That's that's a little bit of what we do in there. We talk about a few topics and kind of just warm up. And then uh, we usually have to wind down. And that's all in there as well. It's like a full additional show that gets packed into that second feed. Plus extra mistakes. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. And uh, if you like to know how we messed up, <laughs> that's uh, that's how you're going to. That's, that's good. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should. What are we doing, Wes? Why are we doing that? <laughs> we it's should got, it can't that. be good for our reputations. <laughs> no, but no. too late, we've committed. Yeah, I know some people like the full thing. So thank you, everybody who supports the show over at Un. UnpluggedCore.com. Just a couple of feedback items before we get out of here. Number one was just an excuse to mention a great tool that we haven't talked about for a little bit. Jack writes in, he says, hey guys, I'm not aware if you've seen this before. I think I found a great tool for system administration and for local management or even remote server management. It's called SSH. No, I'm kidding. It's called Cockpit. And it's, of course, in Arch, but it's also in Fedora and a lot of other distributions as well. And once you install it, you'll find it at localhost on port 9090. You can manage VMs, updates, network, and a bunch of other stuff. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks for the show, Jack. 
Well, Jack, we love Cockpit here at the show. We've talked about it a few times, but Wes and I were thinking it'd been a little bit. Uh, did you recently just install it too? Is it just totally unrelated to this email? Yeah, well, I was doing updates to JBot over the weekend. Well, updates now. Uh, basic maintenance, let's call it that. Life support restoration? Hospice care? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I was moving it to a uh, Fedora 33 box, and, you know, there there was Cockpit for me already. I was like, oh, yeah, I've kind of forgotten about Cockpit, but it sure is handy to have because it's come a long way, and it, it really is quite full-featured and handy. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, it makes, I mean, no disrespect to the Webman team, but it makes Webman just like uh, look like a real tool of the past. And Cockpit has much better security history and story, much more modern. I think that's it. I kind of forget that like GUI server management can be a thing on Linux because I'm, I mean, I'm just used to using the command line anyway. And that's kind of my, my preference or at least default. But you're right. Cockpit like kind of resets that. It It's good. Also, a lot of times people will write in and say, how come you don't talk about XYZ web GUI to manage containers on the show? And a lot of times my response back is, oh, because Cockpit does it. Cockpit does it well. Uh, Five wrote in. You want to take his email? Five wrote in with an uh, interesting little tip he developed with more people becoming eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. One of the most difficult things now is getting an appointment. I resorted to writing a simple Python script to output availability using the vaccinespotter.org API. The script is noisy, but attempts to output only new availability. I also wrote a matrix shell command to send me various notifications. I've used this script and cron to notify me when new appointments open up. Just thought I'd share with the Linux Unplugged and Jupyter Broadcasting community, since I think everyone in it rocks. And boy, you are right about that one, Five. And thanks, this looks pretty handy. It can be pretty tricky to find those appointments. And this is exactly the sort of, you know, open source sharing and just like, you've learned some fun tools on the Linux command line, and now you can make them useful for problems in your own real life. What a great example of learning to build something by having a problem to solve. And this was a clever one. I like this. And it got me thinking, if you have little small projects like this, they don't have to be significant, although those are cool too. Let me know, um, but let more importantly, let the Coder Radio Show know, because I'd love to maybe talk about them from time to time in our feedback, uh, just like Five just did. You can go to coder.show slash contact for those. And little code projects you've built to solve problems like this that maybe others might be interested in, but nobody knows about it. I'd love to share what our community is building, and the Coder Radio program would be such a perfect outlet for that. So coder.show slash contact uh, for that stuff. Coder Code Swap. Yeah, actually, check out uh, the Coder Coder Radio coming out later this week because Wes joined to give uh, Mike a hard time. So I really enjoyed that episode. <laughs> hey, that wasn't my intention, but that is what happened. Uh, anyways, this here show, uh, if you want to find anything that we talked about today, links for all of that stuff, of course, all at linuxunplugged.com slash 399. If you do that Twitter thing... That Twitter thing, you can follow the podcast at Linux Unplugged. I'm over there at Chris LAS, at Wes Payne over there. That's right. You on Twitter, Wes? I sure am. I don't see you tweet much. You don't, you're not a big tweeter. I should probably tweet more, or maybe I shouldn't tweet at all. I just don't know anymore. You tweet when you need to, right? I mean, you're not, you're not spamming people. You're not, you're not spamming people. That's right. Low volume, just some weird, interesting things from time to time. Yeah, and you know, same on on the Grams. He's got some, you know, he's got some local picks that are pretty good. Uh, so go go check that out. But the the whole network also has God, the Twitter. You know, it, it's it's a thing. So what can I say? The network's there at Jupiter Signal. But really, you know what's great? Websites. Websites are good, and we have one of those. JupiterBroadcasting.com. 
So go over there. Yeah, just good, clean, pure HTML for you. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know about pure, but definitely HTML. Don't look too close. (laughs) And be sure you check out Linux Action News every Monday morning. Wes and I break down everything that matters in the world of Linux. So join us. We'll be back for episode 400 next Tuesday. That's at uh, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. And we'd love to have you join us to celebrate 400 ridiculous episodes of the show I launched to read emails. Yep. And now look at us go. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. Wes and I have been doing something special for the last few weeks in preparation, and we will unveil it in episode 400. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Unplugged program. And we will see you right back here next Tuesday. Let's name it. JBTitles.com. Let's go pick our title. Mumble Room, you were great today, everybody. Thank you very much. Lots of great discussion. I really enjoyed that. Really great that you contacted the developer for Lutris, actually, and you got to talk with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was great, yeah. Yeah, and I, was, I wasn't I was sure if at the time it would work out, but it totally did, and that, that was pretty cool. It was nice. And um, I think he's found a new comfortable place with it. I think the, I think the project's safe. But I think it is a, it's good to touch in with those issues because, like, we don't want to talk about it all the time on the show because it's kind of a bummer that a lot of things aren't great for people who are putting software out there for free. Surprise, surprise. And we don't want to talk about it, but it's the reality. And I get the sense that most people in the community are down for a solution that's equitable for everybody. And it, we just haven't really stumbled on the right one. And when we get there, I think it's going to be great for developers. We're just, we're just not there right now. And in the meantime, it makes me even more grateful for everyone out there who's sticking it out. Even if, you know, they're never going to make a dime. They're, they're, they're somehow finding that balance and they keep going. And it just makes me just incredibly grateful for them. Yeah, I mean, it really makes the uh, Linux desktop, the open source world and landscape, I mean, it makes it what it is, right? And it makes the arse kicking that we're given to the commercial desktops even more impressive. 